Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 47 called The Decline of the Roman Army. In the last episode, we heard about Alaric's sack of Rome in AD 410. And for me, there's one thing that stands out like a sore thumb. Just why didn't the Roman army try to stop him? Why didn't it fight to the last man defending the ancient glory of Rome? This has to be the single most surprising thing about the sack of Rome in 410. The Roman army sat back and did nothing. And we know that it could have done more since there were several Italian legions and cavalry units based at Ticinum in northern Italy. There were also some Roman soldiers and barbarian allies defending Ravenna, where the Emperor Honorius was resident. But the only military action the Romans undertook to try to save Rome was Honorius's dispatch of a force of 6,000 regular Roman troops marched in from Illyria just before Alaric's second siege of the city in 409. However, Alaric intercepted them and cut them to pieces so that only a hundred survivors reached the city. Most historians' accounts of the sack of Rome explain the Roman army's inactivity as the result of internal political conflict. And of course, there's a lot of truth in this. Honorius was more concerned to protect Italy from invasion by the usurper Constantine III than to defend Rome from the Goths. He was also safer in Ravenna, protected by its marshes, than in Rome, although he did in fact try to flee to Constantinople and only decided not to do this when a fleet with 4,000 Eastern Roman troops unexpectedly arrived to save him. In addition, perhaps the most surprising fact of all, as mentioned in the last episode, is that Alaric was actually unwilling to sack Rome. He went there three times and could have sacked it on the first two occasions, but chose not to, instead preferring to be bought off the first time and then colluding with the Senate in promoting one of their own, Priscus Italus, to imperial power. His third siege and then sack of the city was motivated by exasperation with the futile political situation and in particular with Honorius's refusal to give him a senior political post in the running of the Western Empire. The Goths actually wanted to join the Romans. They didn't want to destroy them. All of these political reasons have been given by most historians as the reasons for why the Roman army failed to confront Alaric and to defend Rome. But while these political considerations were important, by giving them overriding significance, we miss, I think, the single most important point of all. For the truth was that the Roman army was largely useless by AD 410. The Roman army that had always been the basis for the empire's strength had melted away, leaving Alaric's Goths as the military masters of the Western Empire. So the question has to be, why and how did the Roman army fade away so spectacularly? This question is especially mysterious since only a few years before, Stilicho had been able to defeat both Alaric's invasion of Italy in 401-2, as well as achieve a resounding victory over Radagaisus's Goths in 405-6. What was it that had changed between 406 and 410, which meant that the Roman army was reduced to being a powerless spectator of the Gothic invasion of Italy in 408? This question still puzzles historians and the evidence we have to hand doesn't allow us to make a fully definitive answer, but it seems to lie with two quite separate developments. 
The first was a decisive shift in military resources in favour of Alaric and against the Romans in the years between 406 to 410, which we've already discussed in the last episode, but which I'll just recap on again briefly. If you recall back in 401-6, when Stilicho had defeated Alaric and Radagaisus, he used not just the Italian legions, but all the legions in the Western Empire that were available to him, including those in Gaul and Britain. But after 407, he couldn't call on the legions in Gaul, Britain and Spain, since both the Germanic invasion of Gaul in December 406 and Constantine III's rebellion in 406-7 meant that these legions were all either destroyed or actually hostile to him. Consequently, he only had the Italian army to rely on, which was of course used to block the Alpine approach of the usurper Constantine III. It was because of this desperate situation, if you recall, that Stilicho had even proposed sending Alaric to fight Constantine III, the very thing that caused his immediate downfall since the Italian legions mutinied, thinking they were being passed over in favour of Alaric, to whom they would have to report. Also, the fact that Stilicho had just secured the Senate's agreement to pay the Goths £4,000 of gold must have been additionally galling for them. It really is little wonder that rumours spread that Stilicho was in league with Alaric. Then the tipping point came after Stilicho's death in August 408, when the Romans massacred the Gothic families, causing the 12,000 and perhaps more Gothic warriors in the Roman army to switch sides and join Alaric, creating the Gothic supergroup we heard about in the last episode, numbering probably well over 30,000 combatants, This was further added to after Alaric's first siege of Rome by a host of Gothic slaves taking his army to maybe 50,000. Against this, the Romans just had the Italian legions at Ticinum and some garrison troops scattered in cities like Ravenna in Italy as well as some troops stationed in Illyria and North Africa. It's impossible to estimate the size of the Roman forces, but the fact that they were reluctant to offer battle strongly suggests that they were numerically much inferior to the Goths, with I suggest probably less than 20,000 based at Ticinum. So why were the Italian legions not more numerous? If we go back to Diocletian's reign, you'll remember that historians think he increased the size of the army to anywhere between 300,000 to 500,000 troops. This did, of course, include both halves of the empire, but even so, how had the Western army of, say, some 200,000 shrunk to such a small force by 410 that Rome itself couldn't be defended. I think this has to be one of the key questions which historians still struggle to answer. Part of the answer lies with the political divisions within the Western Empire we've just been discussing. But surely there was more to it, and there was a much more fundamental decline of the Roman army during the course of the 4th century, which was the real reason why Rome couldn't be defended. And to understand how that decline happened, we need to piece together a number of critical events and developments that conspired to reduce the Roman army, both in the West and East, to a much smaller and less professional army than it was under Diocletian. 
And the various pieces of this story are often separated by decades, but I think they do fit together to give a coherent account of the army's decline. And let me spend the rest of this episode trying to explain what might have happened. So, let's start with the so-called crisis of the 3rd century, back in the years 250 to 70, when the Roman army had been defeated more times than ever before and seemed to be on the verge of collapse. You'll remember from earlier episodes that in those years, matters were so bad that two emperors were killed or captured in battle, that is Decius in 251 and Valerian in 260. And as mentioned some time ago in episode 13, perhaps the Roman army suffered as much as around a quarter of a million casualties in those years. Egypt, Syria and half of Anatolia were lost to the Palmarines. Gaul, Britain and Spain broke away from Rome under Posthumus and the Balkans were devastated by the Goths with even Athens being sacked in 267. This very nearly resulted in the empire's collapse. However, as you know, a succession of soldier emperors from the militarised province of Illyria seized power, restored the army's morale by imposing rigorous discipline and by improving army pay and living conditions. This was financed essentially by seizing money and supplies from civilian populations. The results were impressive. The emperors Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian and Probus defeated all of the empire's enemies, including the Goths, Alemanni, Persians, Palmarines, as well as the breakaway Gallic Empire, and restored the empire to its former territorial boundaries, with the exception of Dacia and the so-called Agri-Decumates, as the area between the Rhine and Danube was called. Then the emperor Diocletian, who was probably the most visionary emperor in the entire history of Rome other than Augustus, focused on creating a sustainable mix of military might, fiscal efficiency and political stability. He instituted the Tetrarchy to provide better government with four emperors, two senior and two junior, each governing their respective quarters of the empire. The army was restored to its former strength of at least 300,000 well-trained and equipped soldiers and some historians think it was actually expanded up to maybe 500,000. An extensive bureaucracy was created to administer a radically improved tax system that was recalibrated to be surprisingly fair to the empire's citizens. No subsequent European states came close to emulating this until the modern era. Now let's have a look at Diocletian's new Roman army in a little bit more detail. The first point is that it was basically still fairly similar to the armies of Augustus and Trajan, in that it still had large numbers of heavily armoured legionaries. However, a major innovation wrought by the Illyrian soldier emperors had been the introduction of a stronger cavalry arm. The Emperor Gallienus had first formed a single large cavalry regiment, probably by consolidating all the legionary cavalry which had historically been dispersed among the legions. And as you know in the past, the Romans had used the legionaries as their main strike force with cavalry in support. But Gallienus reversed this to use the cavalry as his strike force supported by the legionaries. 
This change was really born out of the necessity to have a more mobile army capable of intercepting invaders. Remember, at this time, it wasn't the Romans who were doing the invading, but the barbarians who were invading the empire. The Illyrian soldier emperors further developed the cavalry arm, using Asiatic horse archers, Moors and Arabs in addition to the Roman heavy horsemen. Just how important this new cavalry arm was is shown by the fact that both the emperors Claudius Gothicus and Aurelian were cavalry commanders before they became emperors. Interestingly, some historians think Diocletian may have returned more to the old school of Roman warfare by re-emphasising the infantry over the cavalry because the empire was now safe and he needed infantry rather than horsemen to man the huge network of fortifications he built across the length and breadth of the empire. But the key point is that when he abdicated from power in 306, the empire was well defended and safe with a large and strong army. So, what went wrong during the course of the 4th century? Well, one of our main contemporary sources on the Roman army, Zosimus, writing in the 5th century, said that there was a marked decline in its effectiveness during the course of the 4th century, and he blames this initially on Constantine, who he claims took soldiers away from the frontiers, where Diocletian had stationed them, to form a new mobile reserve army. Quote, Constantine abolished Diocletian's frontier security by removing the greater part of the soldiery from the frontiers to cities that needed no auxiliary forces. He thus deprived of help the people who were harassed by the barbarians and burdened tranquil cities with the pest of the military so that several straight away were deserted. Moreover, he softened the soldiers who treated themselves to shows and luxuries. Indeed, to speak plainly, he personally planted the first seeds of our present devastated state of affairs, end quote. While there's no doubt that Zosimus was prejudiced against Constantine because he was a pagan who disliked Constantine's conversion to Christianity, nevertheless, there does seem to be some truth in what he said, because we know that Constantine had a large field army normally stationed not far from Constantinople. Why? Well, because he fought a lot of civil wars in his reign before he secured sole rule of the empire in 324. And unlike Diocletian, who used the Tetrarchy as his method of dividing and ruling, Constantine kept a strong central army ready to crush internal opposition. Now, this is where it gets particularly interesting because Zosimus's criticism of Constantine was really that he made the Roman army into a two-tier system by dividing it between border troops and his central field armies. This was recognised at the time because the Romans actually changed the names for their regiments. They called the border troops the Limitanii and Repenses, literally meaning border and river guards, and the field army was called the Comitatenses, really meaning the emperor's companions. But the problem this created was that the Limitanii became a sort of second-rate border police, while the Comitatenses were like the old legions. And this was very different from the old system when the 
legions were all the same. They were all top quality troops. But Constantine created a field army that was a bit like a vast Praetorian guard, which, by the way, he disbanded after he defeated them at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312. And this field army developed a whole structure all of its own. For example, the absolutely elite regiments were totally new ones, like the Scoli Palatini, who were cavalry regiments of around 500 strong. Constantine didn't abolish the legions completely, and we still hear about old legions from the days of Augustus, but these could be either kept along the borders or placed in the field army. The one major change he did make to the legions was to reduce their size from about 5,000 to 1,000 to make them more flexible. And he appointed two commanders of the field army, the Magister Equitum and the Magister Peditum, literally the commander of cavalry and the commander of the infantry, who were really the commanders-in-chief of the entire army. So what happened in the first half of the 4th century was that the Roman army was divided into two sections, border troops and field army troops, and the border troops became second-rate and pretty useless. Although there is evidence that they could sometimes still be required to join the field armies in major campaigns, such as the Emperor Julian's Persian campaign, this was the exception rather than the rule. And I think this helps to explain why the late Roman army seemed to get smaller and smaller, because the number of top-quality troops was truly getting smaller and smaller. For example, Augustus had, let's say, 300,000 top-quality troops. But by the end of Constantine's reign, although there might have been an army as big as 400,000 soldiers, probably much less than half of these were the field army, let's say some 150,000 at best. And these were the ones comparable with Augustus's 300,000. So in terms of quality, the Roman army had plummeted. The Emperor Julian's reign is very relevant in this respect. For example, the sources say there were only about 15,000 soldiers at the Battle of Strasbourg in 357, which is surprisingly small for such a great victory over the hordes of Alemanni. But these 15,000 were the Gallic field army and top quality troops. There must have been a lot of border troops who Julian just didn't think were good enough to use in battle. And, as every general knows, it's much better to have a small but high-quality army rather than a big army but with most of the soldiers ready to run away at the first opportunity. And I think Julian was intensely aware of the problems in the Roman army and, like with everything else he did, he wanted to go back to the glory days of the empire. So when he led his great expedition against Persia a few years later in 363, the army was allegedly around 100,000 and this was probably because he did include some border units and the field armies from both halves of the empire. And I think Julian did this on purpose to try to restore the army Army to what it had been before, and his expedition was really the last occasion on which there was a large, united Roman army like there had been in the great days of the empire. But Julian's campaign was, of course, a failure, and even worse for the Romans, in my view, was his death. So he never got round to solving the problem Constantine had created. 
And the next step in the army's downfall was, of course, its defeat by the Goths at Adrianople in 378. Now, the problem here was that it was the eastern field army that was destroyed, consisting of some 30,000 elite Roman soldiers. This was a crucial blow to the eastern army because its professional corps had been destroyed and really it didn't recover for well over a century until the Emperor Justinian reconstituted it in the 6th century. And this led to a fundamental mistake the Romans made because instead of rebuilding their own elite regiments after Adrianople, they started to use the Goths as their elite regiments. They called them federati, meaning allies, but in reality they were nothing more than mercenaries. And the next step after that in the Roman army's downfall was that Theodosius used the Goths in his civil wars with the Western Empire. You'll remember that there were two usurpers in the West, Maximus and then Arbogast, who Theodosius defeated at the battles of Petovio in 388 and the Battle of the Frigidus River in 394. And in both battles, Theodosius used the Goths, not Romans, as his crack troops. And the really tragic thing for the Romans was that Theodosius won these two battles by destroying the Western field army. So by 394, when the Frigidus River battle was over, both halves of the empire had lost many of their best Roman troops, the east at Adrianople and the west at the Frigidus River. And I think this is the key to understanding why the Roman army was so weak in the 5th century, because it had lost its professional core. Okay, it hadn't lost it completely. There were still Palatini regiments that were still very good, but there simply weren't enough of them. And that's why the Romans started using Goths and other Germans and Huns instead of Romans as their crack troops. And of course, this proved disastrous because one moment the Goths were fighting for you, but the next they turned against you, just as Alaric did when he sacked Rome. This whole subject has been much debated by historians, with some historians referring to it as the barbarisation of the Roman army. And I think it's worth clarifying one point, which is that this barbarisation wasn't about the barbarians becoming legionaries. It was about barbarians being used as mercenaries. The Goths always remained a separate Gothic unit in the Roman army. They didn't dress up as legionaries. But the thing that makes it confusing is that the low-quality Roman border troops started looking more and more like the barbarians and less like legionaries. And this decline was well documented by contemporaries. One of our most damning descriptions comes from Vegetius, who noted that the Roman infantry was now next to useless, although the cavalry was still quite good. Quote, For though, after the example of the Goths, the Alans and the Huns, we've made some improvements in the arms of the cavalry, yet it's plain the infantry are entirely defenceless. From the foundation of the city of Rome until the reign of the Emperor Gratian, the foot war cuirasses and helmets. But negligence and sloth, having by degrees introduced a total relaxation of discipline, the soldiers 
began to think their armour too heavy, so they seldom put it on. They first requested leave from the emperor to lay aside the cuirass, and afterwards the helmet. In consequence of this, our troops in their engagements with the Goths were often overwhelmed with their showers of arrows. Nor was the necessity of obliging the infantry to resume their cuirasses and helmets discovered, notwithstanding such repeated defeats, which brought on the destruction of so many great cities. End quote. I think Vegetius is describing the border troops when he describes the infantry as so bad. But the really striking thing is what a contrast this was to what the Greek historian Polybius, if you remember him, writing in the 2nd century BC, said about how impressive the Roman Republican army was. Another important source that shines light on the condition of the Roman army prior to the sack of Rome comes from the Natissio Dignitatum, which I've mentioned before is an extraordinary list of Roman army units that somehow has survived to this day. Although there are lots of gaps in the information it presents, the historian Peter Heather has suggested that it indicates that around half of what remained of the field army in the Western Empire was destroyed in the years between 406 to 410. And this would make a lot of sense when you think that it was in those years that you had the Germanic invasion of Gaul and Constantine III's uprising, both of which were extremely destructive. So once we put all these different pieces of the jigsaw into place, I think a clearer picture starts to emerge of the extent of the decline of the Roman army in both East and West. And in the 5th century, this decline proved catastrophic for the Romans, especially when the Federati turned against them, as Alaric did in 401-2 and 408-10. And the main victim of this decline proved to be the city of Rome, sacked for the first time in 800 years in AD 410. But it wasn't just the decline of the Roman army that was responsible for the sack of Rome. As you know, it was the westward migration of the Goths and Germans that was also critically important. And to explain that, we must look even further east to the Huns. And then we must look to what drove the Huns west. And that enemy was almost certainly not human. It was climate change. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And next week, we'll look at all the other reasons why Rome fell in 410. And as I mentioned last week, please do sign up for my newsletter on my website at www.nickholmesauthor.com if you want updates and a special monthly article on Roman history. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.